Welcome to Living with Purpose, the interview series where Francis Lynch speaks to various people about what purpose means to them and explores what gives them the energy to do what they do. Most people have got a story to tell, and these interviews show that extraordinary stories come from ordinary and not so ordinary people. So listen on as we explore purpose and meaning, and hopefully learn a little about some great people. Ian Carter is the CEO of Anglicare WA, a role he's held for the last 20 years. During this time, he's also been involved in many other organisations and held roles such as the President of the WA Council of Social Service, Deputy President of the Australian Council of Social Service, and has been involved in countless other things such as chairing the WA State Task Force on Poverty. Ian's been consistently involved in community campaigns to address poverty, homelessness, domestic violence and other issues, and has also championed the importance of leadership in the community sector in Australia. I've known Ian for over 20 years, and it was great to catch up and record this conversation with him. So welcome, Ian. Um, thanks for being part of this uh, Living With Purpose podcast. Pleasure. Um, can you tell me, or tell the listeners really, I've, I've already done a sort of formal introduction earlier, um, can you tell the listeners who you are and um, what, what it is that you do? Um. I'm a really simple person, I think. Um, my wife and I often have that discussion about being a simple person. Um, and and my, my life, I suppose, has been an interesting journey. Our journey shaped us. I started as a school teacher in terms of a working career, um, but very quickly realised that I, I was never going to be someone who was just going to be standing up the front of a classroom and doing stuff and for me I, I became a district youth officer at Rockingham High School which was my first placement and then I became chairman of a local community agency um, working with unemployed young people so you know, and then I I um, got a huge grant with a mate uh, as a teacher and we built the first television studio in a, in a um, high school oh wow down at Rockingham High School, which was an amazing place, with a guy called Wayne Richards. Amazing experience. He was the driver, I was the writer of applications, he was the media person, and I was the supporter, enabler kind of person. And then I became a youth education officer at Lockridge High School. And when I say Lockridge High School, people go, oh, it was the best school. And there was the Beasley Inquiry into Education, and I remember going along and saying... Having been at Rockingham High School with 1,400 kids and Lockridge High School with 560 kids, the key message was size matters. And it was a, my key message. And like People were after deep educational and other yeah, bits and pieces. Yeah. But we had a principal who was committed to the community and had a school that was running between five and 600 kids. And we start, I was part of a student services team that included a social worker, a guidance officer, a school nurse and I. And we eventually had our own building. And we used to say, you couldn't fart at, at Lockridge High School without one of us knowing about it. <laughs> so when you say size matters, it was smaller, smaller is better. Be, smaller is better. Which really the goes old... counter to what's actually ended up happening. That's right. We've gone yeah. the other way. And I just think um, 
And everyone talks these days about all the need to understand family and what's going on and parenting and connections and holistic approaches. Yeah. You you can't do it with 1,500 kids in a school where it's a factory. I mean, I ran the Lockridge Community Club and women and men, but mainly women, came in and started doing manual arts courses in the school and photography things, and they loved it. So it was a sense of reciprocity and connection between the schools. So all of those were key learning points for me in my journey. Then um, I continued to be on a range of community organisations, Community Enterprise Development Agency, Community Initiative Centre in Fremantle and other things. And in 1983, the election of the Burke government and with those organisations had pushed hard with both parties about responding to then a spiralling unemployment rate, yeah. seven, a half, eight percent unemployment rate, uh, and the Burke government picked it up, and a new unit was created called the Community Employment Initiatives Unit in the state government, and um, I got appointed into that after applying for one of the jobs. So my journey then left education and moved across into the public service. Uh, and was in an innovative team uh, led by a guy called Peter Kenyon. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Peter Kenyon's still around. He's he still around, some runs a, an organisation called Bank of Ideas. That's right. Yeah. And we knew each other um, through a range of things. We actually went to the same church down, Anglican Church down in Beaconsfield, the old St Paul's Beaconsfield, which was a key driver for social justice issues in the Anglican Church and did things, and we both ended up in this unit and... Uh, it was an amazing place to work. The, the straight public servants were not used to having people like us in the public <laughs> service doing things that we were doing. But yeah. So all that journey, sequential and iterative and all built on each other. And then one day I looked up and I'd been through a range of different roles, always heading up community development kind of roles in, in state government agencies. I ended up as the Director of Community Economic Development in the Department of Commerce and Trade. At strategic planning sessions, external facilitators would come in. I tended to know a lot of them. And when they'd ask, you know those wonderful questions where you get stickets and you stick them on the board and yeah. then you do clusters? Yep. There was always a cluster about people in community. And I remember a guy called Professor John Wood facilitated one of them and I knew him well. And uh, about the second time he goes, so Ian, this cluster over here that I put, is that your, all yours? Yeah, that's me. Everyone else was about industry development, total quality management, yeah. manufacturing, economic thing, and I was talking about benefits to people, growing community, all those kind of things. Yeah. But that was my role. Yeah. yeah. And so where does that sort of... You went from there and then ended up here at Anglican. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I was on the Anglican Social Responsibilities Commission. Um, it's still it's still down at St Paul's Beaconsfield. Um, and one day at a Social Responsibilities Commission meeting, someone said to me, so you're applying for the CEO job at Anglican? And I didn't even know it had been advertised. So, yeah, cut a long story short, I applied for it. Um, initially wasn't considered on the short list because I was a public servant. Oh, really? The headhunting company made a decision that a public servant couldn't do the job. Okay. Um, thank heaven, one of the members of the panel um, was on the Social Responsibilities Commission and said, why isn't Ian Carter shortlisted? So I made a shortlist and then eventually got the job. Um, Archbishop Peter Carney was chair of the board. And it was really interesting. I'd, been, I'd become part of 
you know, I've been on the executive of a couple of government agencies and here I was sitting there in the milieu of a public service and then suddenly I joined Anglicare and I remember going for the interview and the portent of things to come, I remember going back to my secretary in commerce and trade and saying, you know, that was an interesting interview, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'd be interested to see how that plays out. Used to public service processes, which would have taken months. months. <laughs> and I was back in my office for 15 minutes and my secretary said, the Archbishop's on the phone. And it was Peter Carnley offering me the job. Yeah. And yeah. then the board meeting was on that night and he said, could you come to the board? <laughs> so I, I Not even contracted yet. No, I wasn't <laughs> contracted. All that stuff had to be sorted yeah. out. But I'd done an interview late morning and at 6 o'clock at night I was sitting at the Anglicare board in West Perth. Hadn't even been home yet. Yeah, that's right. It was just... <laughs> uh, and it was a portent of a very changed life. Yeah. Yeah. So what... Um what do you think have been some of the factors or influences that have actually taken you through that journey? So you've had this this journey through from being a teacher and then being in community economic development and then coming to Anglicare and yep. and obviously there's there's the twenty years or so you've been yeah. here. But yep. um, what's actually been at play as you've gone through that journey? Um, just a year, couple of years before. Um, I applied for the job at Anglicare. Clearly my faith, I, you know, I'm the son of a Methodist minister who, right. then, who then became deputy headmaster at Wesley and was deputy headmaster for 21 years at Wesley College. Yeah. Um, and I went to Wesley College for um, high school. And I think that was a was a important thing for me in my life. You know, there was clearly a faith. Yeah. Um, and... My father to some extent, but then people like Clive Hamer, who was the headmaster, key thing for him was a thing called the Four Others Fund. That's what they called it, the Four Others Fund. So F-O-R. F-O-R. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to think about other people. Yeah. And we're going to fundraise for others. And I remember getting involved in that and going and doing fundraising things. And that were probably, as I reflect back now, early senses of, well, that that's me. And interestingly enough, I've got three brothers. Um, I'm the only one who's maintained my faith. My other three brothers have drifted well away from faith and church. But for me, it's been a passion. Mm-hmm. Um, so my Anglican faith, my faith, um, is a key driver in my life. So I changed from you know, uniting to Anglican. Uh, my first wife was going, got called to the priesthood. Um, you know, we subsequently separated, but her journey was a strong influence on me becoming Anglican. Um, and then I've been on virtually every Anglican body known to man since then. So Perth Diocese and Trustees for 20 years, Diocese and Council for longer, Anglican Social Responsibilities Commission for long periods, Archbishop Selection Committee, General Synod Committee, you know, yeah, all those kind so of things. All, all sorts of things. Lots of things. So I threw myself in, in some senses, to those kind of things. And so when the when someone said, why don't you apply for the Anglican job, it was like, this is my job kind yeah. of thing. It was like this was the end of the journey. I remember I actually said in the last question in the interview um, of the headhunter, he he said, you know, what's your vision? And I had a vision typed up for the vision for Anglican, and I handed it to him and talked it to him. Then he said, so, you know, your strengths and weaknesses, you know, my last question, obviously, and... 
I had a typed up sheet with my strengths and then he said, you don't have one for weaknesses? And I said, I don't have any, this is my job. <laughs> and I did feel called to it. Yeah. I felt called that this was my job. So it was really vocational more than just get a pay yeah. packet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned vocation. Um, Anglican Australia conference, uh, Dorothy Scott spoke at oh, yeah. recently always been very impressed with her but she did a very general one she ran a workshop on child protection and all those kind of things but she ran a very general run about essentially why we do what we do and the challenges and what's we going on and she quoted frederick buchner in it about vocation and i almost cried because yeah. she said and i've got to be careful saying this is vocation where the heart's desire meets the world need or is it where the heart's pain meets the world's need can it be both so what do you think of that oh for me the second one hit i get emotional trying to say it you know i I do have pain at injustice yeah i yell at the radio and the tv when people say things or i see stuff um Injustice is just such an anathema to me, such an opposite to the way I want to be, and I can't believe it when it happens. And so for me, it's been at the very core of who I have been for a long, long time. And and do you think that that is something that, um, so that sense of there's a right to be wronged, and um, is that something that's as powerful for you now as it was earlier? Uh, probably more powerful, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I think the very nature of um, who I am is embedded in that sense of the struggle for justice, yeah. the struggle to right things. I mean, sometimes I'll watch a TV program because I know it's going to be about the goodies and the baddies and the goodies are going to win because <laughs> I feel good at the end of it, yeah. maybe after a really shitty day. Yeah. You know, and you'll watch something and yada, 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 and, oh, they've done that, and whatever it might be, inane or whatever, It'll settle me so I can go to bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and I do, um, I do get emotional about the work and that I do and, and, and being part of it. Another part of my journey probably has been, um, you know, I, I remarried and inherited three daughters. And, and I now have um, 15 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Yeah. I remember you telling me, you know, it's, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And my wife left Sydney without going into... She, she left Sydney and an, another marriage some years beforehand <coughs> um, to escape some pretty horrific stuff going on in family and in stuff that was going on in and around her girls. So there's still remnants of that left and that still plays out in their lives. Um, And a whole lot of the work that Anglicare does happens sometimes in and around my family. And I know that when I'm talking about stuff on radio in a strategy session with the board, I can talk from a range of perspectives. Mm. I can talk about it from a theoretical perspective from a political perspective, and in my very heart, there's a strong sense of the personal. And I, I understand the journey and the pain and the 
pain in your heart and the meeting people's needs and the journeys that people go on. So do you think that makes a difference to you in being able to do the job that you are as, as CEO of I think it does, and I have reflected on that probably in the last five or six years. You know, I have just finished 20 years as CEO of Medicare. I'm as passionate about it now as I was on April the 18th, 1995, when I started. Um, And I think the journeys with staff, I often say to staff here, with almost 500 staff and some amazing people in here, the passion of some of the people who are here re-energises and re-passions me on a regular basis. But also that deep felt heart and pain about stuff that goes on with either clients or my family, I understand the, the kind of realities of what we're doing. I mean, we were talking the other day, we're increasingly trying to get our clients to be connected with our journey. Yeah. Like a lot of agencies, but... And because we're statewide, because we give us such a huge range of services, but in the family and domestic violence area, we actually had a, a client come in uh, and we'd written a case study up and was, that was used at board level, had huge impact on the board, our capacity to draw this woman and her children out of a northwest community, down into Perth, supported into a home and amazing things happen. The really interesting stuff, and it and it does go deep into why an agency like this does and what we should be about. Um, She'd said at one stage in an internal discussion she had with some of our senior leaders when we were reflecting with her, and she was really nervous and she had little cards written up, and I said, we're just going to pull some chairs around and have a cup of coffee and we're just going to have a yarn with you. Yeah. So she just started talking about things and she said, the biggest thing that happened was when one of our workers up north who'd been involved in a case management meeting with child protection and the police, came back and in the meeting with her said, within three days you need to leave this community and you need to go down to Perth. And she said, I had to trust her. I had to trust her with my life and my children's lives. And obviously the trust was there. The trust was there. Exactly. And you sort of go... To do that. And and it's such a powerful reminder. And I was... We, I gave a certificate to one of our, for our longest serving foster carer the other day. Yeah. You know, 15 years of fostering 123 kids. And it's I said, a lot of work. I said, what's your secret? <laughs> and apart from patience, yeah. he said, building trust. And so it's those kind of things. I think understanding where you come from and where those kind of things fit within your worldview and your operation and trying to play that out in the way that we operate. So that passion, and when you were talking about, um, you know, that that you feel the pain, or you've you've got that experience, and you can actually use that positively. Yep. Obviously, not everyone can do that. So sometimes the pain can become overwhelming and, yep. and debilitating. Yep. Um, do you think there's any reason why that doesn't happen to you, or maybe it does? I don't know. I, yeah. I think I have support structures. I certainly have an amazing wife. Um, Karen is, is um, amazing. Um, so, you know, I, I've often acknowledged her significant role in my journey. Um, but I also think other people around me, you know, I've, I've had some great exec teams. Um, one of the most significant appointments I made about eight years ago was a, um, 
chaplain parish partnerships coordinator. He's been key for a lot of people in the agency. He has been for me as well. At times, sitting down and shooting the breeze with him, yeah. having a cry, yeah. talking about stuff. They're, they're important sort of parts of journeys. And I do use sometimes external, uh, you know, counsellors or support stuff when you're really, really going tough and you sort of go out and we have an EAP program and you go out and you yeah. use it. Yep. I think that's what we all need to do in terms of the kind of journey that you're on. Because this is hard yakka. You know that. This is hard yakka. Um, trying to trying to lead an organisation where we're not about shareholder return, we're not about return on investment, capital return, we're unequivocally about delivering um, better outcomes for the clients that we work with. And we work with, you know, 32,000 clients a year. We, we can't just be ticking the boxes and delivering the contract. That's, that's not what we're here for. If that's what we're here for, we might as well pack up. We're about making real changes in those lives. So given, I mean, there's all of that and, and, you know, there's been 20 years now of you being in this this work here at Anglicare, how, how do you actually reflect back and what do you think about as being, in a sense, a purpose or a direction? Do you, are you, do you have a form of words or a way of thinking about your personal sort of connection to that? Um, I've... I've I've written as part of some of our work. An Anglican, an Anglicare CEO recently, in a thing, said the most important work for her was to explain why we do what we do. Yeah. And so I, I, I heard that, and I thought, gee, it's about time. So, um, me and one of my staff have re- recently written um, why we do what we do, and it's in last draft. And so that was a really interesting exercise for me um, you know it's now a document which goes over 21 pages yep. um, and it talks about everything from civil society to the old Micah 6 8 what, do, what does God ask of you only this did you act justly love tenderly and walk humbly with your God the Dong Dor integral spirituality kind of stuff the Matthew Fox a spirituality yep. name compassion yeah. it draws all those in but it also draws in um, good to great in the social sectors, you know, and other sort of frames of reference. And um, Eva Cox's and other Robert Putnam's reflections on um, a civil society. Yeah. So for me, why we do what we do is ingrained around all of those journeys that we are a faith-inspired organisation. I certainly do use, and it's in, in the document that we've written, you know, the old Good Samaritan story. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's an oldie but a goodie, you know. like, And it, and it has a, I think it's the type of story where, um, you know, repeated reflections on it probably brings, you know, nuances and, yeah. and different sort of perspectives over time. So we, we've, we've drafted that and we've reflected around that. And for me, one of the really interesting things about that is... Um, yes, we're a faith-inspired organisation, um, but our job is not to baptise and nurture but new believers. You no. know. In the Anglican March of Marks of Mission, there's five marks of mission. Um, mark three is reaching out and loving service, and Mark four is about um, advocating for social justice. So we're about three and four. Parishes, churches, cathedrals and others, and probably Anglican schools, 
are around some of those other things. And for me, the Good Samaritan story says it in saying that um, the Samaritan went across the road with no agenda and no matter who that person was. So it didn't matter whether it was man, woman, Jew, Gentile, they went across the road and they gave help and assistance and a sense of empowerment because they then took them on to the end and said, here's some denarii, I'll come back and pay, pay more if you need to provide some more service and allow this person to get on with their lives. So this sense of going over for no agenda, whoever the, the person is, and empowering them, to me is the ultimate statement of us reaching out in loving service. That's what we're there for. And we have to be unequivocally open to all. And, and I, I get very twitchy when we, there's any impression that we're talking about being anything else other than to open to all. Yeah, and, and you know, clearly it's not about, uh, as many of the church or faith-based organisations in Australia are, it's not about all of the people in the organisation being from that faith or exactly. about the people who are being served being yep. from that faith. So, exactly. And it's, yeah. I mean, and proudly... Um, we talk about, you know, our values and various bits and pieces of our strategy are drawn from our uh, history and connection to the Anglican Church and the journeys around the Micahs and the Samaritans and the blah, blah, blah. Um, but day-to-day service delivery, open to all, no agenda. Yeah. That's what we're here for. And we use the... And I think you could you could come up with all kinds of biblical stuff out of it, but, you know, we, we certainly like the framework of surviving, coping, building, thriving. That's what we're about, moving people from surviving and coping through to building and thriving. You know, it's a, it's a nice framework. Yeah. And so over, over a 20-year journey, obviously, uh, well, not obviously, perhaps, but um, I wonder about whether there's, in a sense, almost having to recommit at different times to the, to the journey and to the, to the vision and the purpose. And yep. um, I'm wondering for you if, if you, if I can ask you to reflect almost that, you know, what might drive you and, and be purposeful for you now, whether that's changed over that 20-year period or whether it's it's developed? I think it's probably developed a bit, but I think that there's a, there's a very strong core that's remained pretty unchanged. I mean, I do say when I go and get asked to do leadership talks at different stages, I always say to people, I don't care whether you're a, a, a truck driver you know, a fireman, an engineer or a social worker, you actually need to have a frame of reference about who you are and what's important to you and you need to reflect on it. It might just be my family is preeminent in my life. Um, I believe in blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah in terms of the way I do my work and, uh, you know, I I believe professional development and engineering is important and I'm going to do it twice a year. That's great. For me... It goes right back to the issue around the faith journey, the professional journey, an understanding of the real world of politics and all that kind of stuff. So I have to continually challenge myself and refresh myself and do that. But really, as I've done it, every now and then I'll get bits and pieces and the you know, the Dorothy Scott thing on vocation I hadn't seen before. So like it, it you know, you, when you see something, you know, you, people talk about an aha moment. Yeah. It's like... Brilliant. I get that. That's a bit more finessing of my understanding of that. I'm going to bring that into my treasure trove and hold that close for a while and it'll play out in me. 
I remember I went one day when I was looking at renewing my contract. So, you know, I have a rolling contract. Archbishop Roger Hurft had only relatively recently been there and I was having a catch-up with him. And he's not on our board, but I was having a catch-up with him, as you do. Um, And I was telling him about, you know, a contract coming up. And so he asked me a couple of questions about passion and faith and other bits and pieces and then said, I now want you to go away and be troubled by God. <laughs> and I was. Hey, <laughs> I was. And look, some, yeah. sometimes when I've re-signed my contract, um, it has been an emotional experience. It has been, you know, tears at times, you know, deeply emotional consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, a- Anglicare's has been in place now for just under 40 years. So I've been at CEO for more than half of it. There's only been five other heads of Anglicare. Um, so in some senses, this is like raising a child, which at some stage I'll be letting go free, but I keep having to challenge myself about whether I'm continuing to add value. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things too, I mean, because I've worked here yeah. um, for five years back in the uh, 90s was that um, it was very small when yeah. I arrived. It was only about 45 people and then it was probably whatever it was, 80 or 90 when you arrived. Yeah. Maybe less. It was less. I mean, yeah. when I arrived, Anglicare turned over $2.65 million. Yeah. Yeah. It now turns over just under 40. Yeah. So $2.65 million was not a very large agency. Yeah. Of course, I thought it was pretty big. Well, um, it sort of was, but, it, but I think... Um, uh, it's it's just, you know, that 20-year journey has just seen a huge shift and change. There might be continuity in, in some of the meaning and the purpose and, yeah. and whatever, but the actual what it is now is is, Comple- is different. Completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's been some of the challenge. I also think the diversity of the agency. Yeah. You know, we are arguably the largest, most diverse community service agency, given that we operate from 60 locations across the state yeah. and we have 68 different service types. <laughs> It includes engagement with volunteers, donors, supporters, uh, across a range of different service types. Um, we run op shops. You know, we do corporate partnership. We do advocacy. Yeah. Um, we, we, we used a phrase at one stage, from the street corners to the corridors of parliament. That's what's kept me there. I mean, if, if, if Anglicare was delivering five to ten services in the same locations 20 years ago, I think I would have left a long time yeah, ago. Yeah. There has been, as you say, huge change and challenge, but that inspires me. I like change. I like challenge. I like taking up the opportunity. I mean, I was in a meeting yesterday about um, the regional reform agendas going on in Western Australia. Yeah. I mean, I was inspired, you know, there were two ministers there who basically said, everything's up, nothing's being taken off the table. We have to deliver out better outcomes for Aboriginal people in this community. And there was a Director-General who's taking it up who spoke even more passionately about let's make this happen and let's do it. Well, yeah. I was re-energised again. Yeah. You know, okay, what's our role yeah, in that? Yeah, what can we do? We've got yeah. 35 staff in the Kimberley. Okay. Yeah. What, how can we play a role in that? Let's not be a hindrance to this process. Let's be an add value to this process. You told me um, when we met a few weeks ago that um, you had signed a new contract and 
um, that it may be your last. And, and so in three or four or five years, you may not be here. You may, like, yeah. who knows what. But yeah. um, if you look out, you know, maybe five, but maybe ten years, yeah. there's probably a good, decent chance you won't be here. Oh, I won't be. You won't be. I'm just turned 60, so, yeah. yeah. Well, you never know. People you never work know. longer these days. Archbishops retire at seventy, maybe you never know. But uh, given that there's there's still this obvious passion and and you know engagement and being enthused about what you're doing now, yeah. If you did look forward ten years, do you see um, your perspective of your own journey and your own purpose um, actually being continuous and consistent, um, even though things may change? Yeah. I, I certainly, it, it will be significantly different, I think, in 10 years' time. I don't think I'll still be here. Yeah. Um, I suppose my challenge to myself is, is to, um, I, you know, I want to continue to make a difference. I want to continue to be focused on issues around social justice. Um, I'll pop, you know, I could well be doing something, I could be a consultant, Um I could be a part-time person. I actually think one of the things in a whole range of professions is to have the old buggers still around. <laughs> Agitating from Agita- the sidelines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or in the middle. <laughs> See, I mean, I think... I mean, I, I, when I leave Anglicare, I need to get well away from it. I think when you leave, you need to get out of the yeah, way. Yeah. You don't want to influence or impact on the new CEO. So when I leave, I'll get well out of the way. But if another community service organisation said, look, we're interested in creating a part-time role, challenging us around our purpose, our journey, our vision, um, our very core values, would you be interested in doing that? I'd love it. Yeah. You know, I'd just sit there and go, look, I want to say to the executive, you know, my, I've been out and about with teams and I'm getting the feeling that the kind of message that we're talking, putting out now is about... It's all about corporate. It's not about justice or whatever. Yeah. And that would be a really interesting role. And I think, you know, for a CEO with the right frame of reference, they could go, wow, what an add value that was, rather than let's not get defensive about this because that's what people, well, well, we are trying to be corporate, but we are still, no, 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 let's, let's have the conversation. Let's really be, I love those kind of conversations. Play in the grey. I think it's an interesting one because there was a at, at Rua when I was there. There was a person who almost played played like a senior special projects role, yep. and he had worked as a CEO in the sector, yep. and so it was actually really helpful for him, uh, for me to have him there because he was doing some of what you were saying. So even though he was doing specific projects, he would come to me every yeah. now and then and say, "Do you realise that this is the way people are interpreting this, yeah, yeah, or whatever?" That's right. It was actually very helpful because he he could see it from where I was sitting, yeah. so as well as just being part of the the troops in a sense. Mm. So mm. yeah, I think I that's, agree. that's an interesting perspective. I'll aspire. Made. I'll aspire to it, or I'll whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I sometimes go home after a hard day and say to my wife, let's sell the house, move to bailing up and hide from the world. Yeah. That lasts about five minutes. <laughs> Till you see something that you rail against yeah, on I, yeah, TV or something. Yeah. And I, and I have decided, you know, I, I've, I've now, having turned 60, I've now given my, myself permission to yell at the TV and the radio as, a, as some politician says some 
yet again some <laughs> other outrageous statement and you know it's ill-informed, yeah. uh, ill-formed, not appropriate, and I'll just go, you can't say that. Well, that's my job, yeah. even if it's just to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, what do you personally have as, as parts of your life or... You've sort of mentioned this a little bit before, but what gives you the energy to actually do what you're doing and, and keeps you coming back and being part of part of this work? I mean, I do think that there is this... Um, I, think I'm, I think I am known in the sector to be someone who can challenge stuff where what you see is what you get that I'll say something to someone directly and no-one's going to find out about it through five people. Yeah, or, or yeah. I think I'm pretty clear and 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 uh, I think I'm seen as collegial and blah, blah, blah. But at the very core is this strong passion, emotion, drawn out of my journey of faith around social justice. And, and it's only got stronger for yeah. me. Um, and I, it will be there until I take my last breath, I think. And do you think that, um, I mean, in a sense, if I use the analogy of a well, you know, if you keep drawing from the well, it may go dry, but how do you get water into the well? What gives you the, you know, the refreshment or the, the you know, is there, there people or things or practices that you have that actually restore well for you? I think probably a range of things. It's like the stuff I was talking about earlier on in terms of saying to people that you need to continually challenge yourself. And I think you can do that in lots of different ways. You can read. You can go to conferences yeah. and listen to people, yep. you know, like my Dorothy Scott stuff. Yep. You know, I picked up I picked up some crumbs, and actually probably more than crumbs. I picked up some big chunks out of that that are now re focusing and energising. And yet that was really possibly 10 or 20 seconds out of yeah. a oh, conference. It was actually the whole, some of the, the whole presentation was pretty outstanding. But, yeah. yeah, it was some bits that really hit hard and they feel like they sort of go straight to your heart. Yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm going, that's brilliant. You yeah. Know? So I'll chase through Bookner now and do a bit more and do, do a bit of reading. Going to church, I'm not an every Sunday going to church person. My faith's important to me. But I go to a church and sometimes, um, you know, I, I go to St. Michael's in Mount Pleasant. I go to St. David's in Applecross. Sometimes I'm in a mood and I'll go to a completely different one. I'll go back to St. Paul's at Beaconsfield, which I did not too long ago. Um, and I like it that for the most part, that like in the Anglican church, I'm, I'm well known, but for most part... People leave me alone. So I don't want to turn up on Sunday morning and people say, oh, see, Ovanica is here. He might want to give us some talks or something. I just want to sit at the back and recharge. Just be part of the congregation. Just yeah. be part of the congregation. Sit in the back a couple of pews. Um, be emotional. Pray. Listen. Reflect. Leave. Yeah. So those kind of things are important. Um and look, I think the conversations with clients and all those kind of things, the conversations with staff, I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier on, I can sit in a meeting with some passionate staff talking about what they're doing and how it's going. I'll come out of it going, you know, 
Okay, some of the batteries are recharged again just because yeah. you sit there going, that's amazing. One of my observations, I suppose, is that um, there are um, people in the community in, that we come across on a day-by-day basis or it might be in the organisation we're working in or in our families, but um, this sense of... Uh, loss of purpose so there are people who really struggle to to connect and be able to understand maybe um where they're going or what they're doing and and what they they really see as their their goal or purpose Mm. in life do you how would you how do you help people who perhaps are struggling a little with that do you do you have ideas of what actually works or look not strongly but i suppose I often say to people that you need to find out who you are. Yeah. You know? And I think then what you do with that uh, becomes important. I sometimes see people doing things. You know, sometimes you see things where people are sort of missing the mark and you go, I actually think it's because they don't actually understand themselves. And you think, look, they'd be so much better if they actually understood who they are. Certainly in, the, in my teams here, and, and, and as you ask that question, it's made me think about another thing. You know, you can do these LSI, MBTI, you know, team. We've done a lot of that. So, you know, I, I know who I am. You know, I know the kind of things that I like and are important to me. I know things that I'll shy away from. I know, you know, I'm an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs stuff. Um, you know, right on the borderline, extrovert, introvert, focused on feelings, intuition and all those. That's me. Yeah. Um, I like getting feedback. I like getting people going, well done, Ian, that was good. You know, that those recharge my batteries and things like that. Um, other people need to know what drives them, you know. Yeah. And I know that, like my executive, um, for most of my time here and certainly at the moment, I've got an executive who compliment me really well. You know, I've got people who really love detail. Yeah. And I, me- I remember going out to one one person who was on my executive a couple of years ago and <clears throat> we were at the stage in our governance journey. It was about 10 years ago, I think about halfway through my time here, and we wanted to do a really detailed delegations manual kind of thing and we got some drafts from some other people. So I went into this woman's office and said, I'm sorry, but I really want to create ours. I've got some drafts here. And this person said, oh, Ian, I'm so excited. <laughs> now, you You've know, got to find the right person yeah, to do that type of thing. and job. I'm thinking, well, I would have hated someone to walk into me <laughs> going, can you do a detailed <laughs> delegations manual for Anglicare WA? But, you know, that's yeah. you don't have people around you who are yes people. You have people who compliment you and yeah, who will yeah. challenge you, who will take the journey up. That keeps you going. Yeah. So do you... Uh, do you have any suggestions around books or uh, blogs or podcasts or, you know, people that you think um, uh, might be ideas for other people to hear about, you know, where do you get some inspiration from, I suppose, is what I'm asking. I read from from lots of different places. I mean, the old Donald Dore Integral Spirituality, Collins Dove 1990, um, I found it in the Cathedral Bookshop when it was closing down in 1991. Okay. Um, that strongly um, influenced me. Someone gave me a spirituality named Compassion by Matthew Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Yep. You know, the concept of dancing Sarah's circle versus climbing Jacob's ladder. Inspirational. Beautiful. Yeah. 
and, ec and economics as if the earth really mattered, another section in that book. I, I got drawn into a guy called Manfred Max Neef. Um, he won the Alternative Nobel Prize for Economics. Okay, um, I haven't heard of him. A member of the Council of the Club of Rome, fellow of the Shoemaker Society. Um, and he's done... He, he's the, probably the best book to want, read is a book called Human Scale Development that he wrote. But he talks about a different way of viewing the world, not by gross domestic product, but by viewing a development focused around people and those kind of things. So... I think you've got to read diversely. I think you've got to read a whole range of people. You got you do have to go to a, to things and make the choice to look to go to a conference or a thing which is going to challenge you. Um, take the opportunities to be challenged and pushed and do those kind of things. Um, you know, like a, around the leadership stuff, um, Kuznets and Posner, and oh, yeah. the stuff that they've done. Um, the Collins, good to great in the social sectors. That that little monograph, which you can read in bed at night, and it's all over. Fantastic. The flywheel in the social sector, the hedgehog concept around understanding what drives a thing. Again, inspirational understanding of the kind of sector. But yet, you, I think you also got to think about it all around. Because the bit that I'm shocking at which towards the end of this interview I introduce is I'm not good at work-life balance. So, really? <laughs> so I work way too many hours and I, um, I'm way less fit than I should be. Uh, and that, that's an issue that I... And, and sometimes my life just is dominated by Anglicare and related organisations and other things that I'm on. So my family occasionally see me. So, you know, that remains a challenge. And there was the, the other important one to read on that, which I occasionally introduce into speeches that I do. And I always say to people, I'm reading this to remind myself about it. Yeah. It's the Curly Pyjama Letters oh, okay. uh, by Michael Lewis, yeah, where he yeah. talks about what is worth doing and what is worth having. You know, is worth doing nothing and having a rest. But at and the same time... Right through about, yeah. you know, the poison of the way our world runs... But at the same time, I mean, you, I've heard you speak just personally over many years and, and you always talk about family and, and community and, and your local community as much as anything. So yeah. it's obviously important to you. It is important to me. And it's not like I, I completely ignore it. No. But I think if I actually sat down and, you know, you can do those um, pie chart kind of things. You time know, How much time on yeah, this yeah, and, yeah. How much, and all those kind of things. The difference between my aspiration and my reality in that area sometimes is probably <laughs> not quite right. Um, and look, and that, but I, I do feel called to this job. Yeah. And so for me, there is there is a sense. So you know, sometimes sixteen hour days uh, and being away a lot and all the rest of it is just the reality of who I am. Yeah. And that will be a challenge when you leave. It will be. Yeah. It will be. And I, you know, I, I'm very well, well aware of people who finish a job and then die of a heart attack or a stroke or something <laughs> or other. And I sometimes sit there and think, now, Ian, you've got to get this right, mate, because... Make the transition I've got to transi something. I've got to transition out and yeah. I've got to transition to different things. So, yeah. 
they're, they're the remaining challenges and my reading ahead of me is going to be about those kind of things. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll set that as a, as a project. And I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so as we draw to a close, is there anything that, um, uh, that you particularly wanted to, to mention, you know, maybe something that's come up that I haven't asked the right question perhaps and, and maybe you wanted to touch on or... I suppose the immediate thing that sprang to mind as soon as you asked that is another reading that you can... There's a guy called Leo Biscaglia who wrote a whole range of books around love and he actually... I think it was Berkeley University where some years ago he... He actually did a, a, a an entire lecture series, you know, Love One O, Love, you know, Two O, Love Three. Oh, okay. Right. Um, in terms of stuff, and he, and he and he talked about the importance of love, and I think that's something that we you know we can talk about trust and relationships and empowerment and courage and all those things that we tend to use when we talk about what we're doing, but at the end of the day, this concept of love. Is so pivotal to us as the human race. Um, you know, it is what sets us apart. And I think to understand the nature of love, and, and again, you can become spiritual, biblical, or whatever about it, or you can become very personal about it. You know, I talked about the importance of my wife, Karen, to my life in the last 20 something other years. You know, and the love and trust that exists between the two of us has been unequivocally one of the things on which has allowed me to do what I do. Yeah. Um, but also that more that more generic sense of that word love, um, in terms of the way you do the work, your passion for your work, and all the rest of it. This word love comes up. I think it's a powerful and beautiful word, um, and we need to find a space for it. Yeah, and and I think too one of the uh, just as I'm hearing you say that I mean love is so many things. It's not just romantic love or fraternal love or whatever. You know, there's just all these different sort of perspectives and and permutations of it. And and it is sometimes I think a word which uh, is seen to be taboo within the workplace, for example. Yeah. You know, that it's a problem if there's an expression of love when, in fact, what we know is is within our organisations that's actually a driving force for yeah. many people is that, you know, their love of their fellow human being or their love of, you know, being in the culture or the particular people who are in their work team or, yeah. you know, and, and a, a really strong force. And, and I suppose it also relates to, you know, another word at another end of a spectrum around it is loneliness. Yeah. And and the, the sense that for many people, far too many people in our community, loneliness is actually a big part of their lives, that that they they don't have a life of relationships and love and trust and reciprocity. They actually have a life of on the end of a computer in front of a TV far too much time spent by themselves and I think some of the issues around technology and the way our community is evolving is something that we need to look at and I do worry about next generations trying 
desperately not to sound like an old fart talking about all this kind of stuff, but I worry about all of those issues and and I look at my grandkids and my great-grandkids and just, you know, you can walk into a room and, you know, four or five grandkids all sitting there on their iPhones, um, you know, texting and Facebooking and whatever, twittering other people. You just sit there just going, (laughs) hi, girls, how you going? Oh, hi. And you just go, is, it, is this where we're up to? Well, sometimes I'm laughing because my kids sometimes, and they're both, you know, late 20s. Yeah. No, sorry, late teens, early 20s. And, and they'll sometimes have a go at, at uh, my partner and I because we're both on our iPads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And that, that has been said of Cara and I, I must admit. But. So, look, thank you so much for the time that you've spent reflecting and, and uh, talking about some of the things that make you who you are and, and give you some sense of purpose and direction and, uh, yeah, about why you do what you do. Um, I can't imagine that, you know, whether it's, you know, three years or five years or ten years that you're still here, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that there's just going to be a life then of, you know, Ian Carter um, sitting, fishing for the rest no. of his life. And Karen's been quite clear about that. There will be none of that. I'll drive her to, distra- to distraction. Because yeah. So certainly there will be something that will fill yeah. the void. And, and I look forward to seeing that, and I'm sure that uh, you'll be around and doing lots of uh, purposeful uh, sort of passionate activities and you know, probably whether that's at a very local level or whether mm. that's being involved in organisations or, mm. you know, getting on the uh, the political bandwagon of getting into, you know, reminding people what they should be doing. Um, look, I look forward to seeing those as you as you uh, grow old, either gracefully or disgracefully, yeah, I don't yeah. know. But, I'm uh, happy with both. <laughs> Thanks, Francis. It's been a really good opportunity. And look, it's actually been a chance for me to re inspire yeah. why I do and to refocus on the passion and it helped the batteries. All right. Thanks, Ian. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Living With Purpose interview series. There are show notes for each episode that you can get on the www.livingwithpurposeinterviews.com website. You can also connect with Francis on Twitter at underscore Francis Lynch, on LinkedIn or on email at francislynch.me at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode as a podcast, then subscribe on your player and tell your friends. Thanks and join us again soon.